Hey, it's Ron. This episode was recorded before I launched Politicology when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have questions, comments, or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com or find us online at politicology.com. Enjoy. Hello from the Lincoln Project. I'm Ron Steslow. Welcome back to our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape of this election. We have an outstanding panel today, independent political strategist, Lincoln Project co-founder and captain on this ship, Reed Galen. Good morning, Reed. Hey, Ron. Steve Schmidt a national political strategist and Lincoln Project co-founder who has worked for President George W. Bush, Senator John McCain, and Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. Steve, it's great to have you back on. Thanks, Ron. Good morning. And CNN political commentator, former Republican communications director on Capitol Hill, and a Lincoln Project senior advisor, Tara Setmayer. Tara, good morning, and thank you for making the time. Thank you. Always a pleasure to join you. On today's episode, we are going to take a look at the first presidential debate between Donald Trump and Joe Biden on Tuesday night. The debate has been widely criticized as chaotic and a disaster. Even the moderator, Chris Wallace, said the debate went off the tracks, and George Stephanopoulos described it as the worst presidential debate he had ever seen in his life. To get us started, I want to start with your reaction to the debate now that we have had time to think about it. Steve, let's start with you. Can you talk about what previous candidates like George W. Bush or John McCain tried to do when they went into a presidential debate and how that compares to what we witnessed on Tuesday night? Well, what they tried to do was to lay out a vision for the country in contrast to their opponents within the bounds of normalcy in American politics. I mean, what we saw last night was a national disgrace. And it was a moment of national humiliation. Humiliation. Our adversaries in Tehran and Moscow and Beijing are gleeful. Our friends in Ottawa and London and Berlin and Paris are horrified. And I've been trying to digest what I saw. And the thing I've been thinking about is the last speech that Dr. Martin Luther King gave. And it's a remarkable speech. I think it's one of the three greatest in the history of the country, arguably, uh, with the Gettysburg Address, Lincoln's second inaugural, and and that speech, the I've been to the mountaintop speech. And in that speech, it's clear if you listen to it that Dr. King knows his death is at hand somehow, that, that, that time is running out. And he says in that speech that he'd like to live a long life like anybody, that longevity has its purpose. But he says none of that, none of that matters now. Um, he, he talks about going to the mountaintop and what he sees. And what he sees from the mountaintop is a country that has fulfilled its high ideals and its perfect idea that all of us are created equal, treated equally, that all of us have a purpose and that government exists to further that purpose, which is to expand life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And, and so Dr. King, though, when he talks about that view from the mountaintop, he doesn't, he doesn't tell us when we get there. And so 
52 years after his death, four years after the first black president left office, we're, we're still struggling. We're still trying to become a more just society. But I've, I've never questioned about whether we're going to get there. I, I've never had a lack of optimism about the country's future until pretty recently. I, I, I'm still on the optimistic side of the equation, but I worry. And I'll tell you the emotion that I felt watching that debate for the first time in my life about my country. And that, and that emotion was shame. It was shame. That, that, that that's the president of the United States. A blustering, lying, bullying buffoon whose incompetence and malice and lying have killed over 100,000 Americans sitting there talking about what a good job he's done. And it was an appalling spectacle. And I think what we have to understand is that all of the people that cheerlead this, that are for it, what is it that they're celebrating? They're, they're celebrating every anti-virtue that there is. They have come to worship at an altar of bullying and malice and meanness and lying and debasements to the ideals, the symbols, the goodness of the country. That's what they celebrate. And Trump represents that. And Trump had all of those things on full display. And so what is it that his cult of personality cheers? Is it the lying that excites them or the bullying? Is it the incompetence or the malice? What is it that they cheer for? And so we'll never see a president, I hope, ever comport themselves like that again and that the American people are on the verge of bringing this tragic error to a close. But, but what it was to come full circle, for the first time in my life, I'm just speechless when it comes to people asking what the hell happened in the United States of America, an appalling and low moment, as low as any as we've ever had. Shameful. Tara, I want to go to you next about who are the voters Trump needed to reach out to during this debate and how successful do you think he was? Success and Donald Trump don't ever belong in the same sentence. Um, he, what he was successful at doing, if we're going to use that term, was alienating more voters. He did the complete opposite of what he needed to do. He's been doing nothing but shrinking his support. His base is what it is. The pe- he, can't, he can't win another election with just his base. So he is right now currently underwater in historic proportions with women, particularly suburban women. These are the same women who went out in 2018 that were tired of Donald Trump's behavior, tired of the Republican Party enabling it, and voted a lot of them out. That's why you see a Democratic House now. Uh, a recent Washington Post ABC poll came out and showed historic gender gap margins in favor of Joe Biden. 
Um, women vote more proportionally. They vote more often than men do, and they have since the 80s. And I, I suspect that we will see an, an, an even bigger increase this time around because, you, you know, you look at Donald Trump's behavior and any woman who has children mm. would look at that and say, oh my God, mm-hmm. I wouldn't allow my five-year-old to behave that way. Why would, why would you want your president of the United States to behave that way? Why would you be okay with that? That's the question that I would ask most people, anyone who's a parent. You don't even have to be a parent. You wouldn't allow your, you know, kids down down the street to behave that way. You know, it's completely unacceptable. So why are we continuing to allow the office of the presidency to be diminished in such a way with someone like Donald Trump and his antics? Besides his obnoxious demeanor, but the lying, the bullying to Steve's to Steve's point, and his continuation of cozying up to our dictators, shunning our allies, and now a nod and a wink, activating white supremacist groups, violent groups in this country, weeks before an election. It's completely unacceptable. And looking at the focus groups and some of the reaction after the debate, it is clear that Donald Trump did was not speaking to some of the voters that he needs. Now, the Supreme Court battle may energize some of the um, center-right people who were on the the, you know, on the um, borderline about what to do because they're so tired of Trump's antics, but they're happy with the results. You know, hey, we had a great economy. We had, we're getting another Supreme Court justice. That's amazing. And, you know, the pro-life folks that have been rationalizing Donald Trump's behavior that it is so far from Christian orthodoxy and so far from Christian teachings, but they rationalize it because they're getting political wins. I say that that's a dangerous way. You know, when you start when you start making excuses that, that political means justify the ends, that never ends well. Um, but those folks, they may say, well, we're, it's okay, we're going to get another Supreme Court justice and cast it aside. But as far as touching the suburban women and closing that gender gap, I don't think he did that. And I also saw recently that a poll came out that showed that Joe Biden is now um, leading or tied with labor labor families, labor households in Ohio. If Donald Trump loses those folks, because he gained a lot of those folks in 2016, they didn't vote for Hillary Clinton. If he's losing those people in those places, he's toast. Reed, while we're talking about the differences between how the two candidates acted during the debate, I want to get your take on how Americans should be thinking about the two candidates after witnessing that debate. Because you know, Trump is down in the polls, he's lashing out. If there was ever a time he needed to pull himself together and keep his composure in this campaign, it was it was Tuesday night, and he seemed to just be incapable. So what are Americans to make of the contrast between these two candidates when was Donald Trump ever accused of having composure and doing the right thing, saying the mm-hmm. right thing for the right reasons? It's, you know, it's only mm-hmm. when we've talked about this before. The only time he does anything that even resembles the right thing is when it happens to, by coincidence, intersect with his own personal interests. Um, he didn't prepare for that debate and he was not going to because he always had the same plan, which was he was going to go in. He was going to attack Hunter Biden. He was going to say some crazy things about socialism. And he was just going to talk over Vice President Biden and just be as, as rude and nasty as he could be. So, like, the contrast, like, what do you need? What else do we need to say? Look at it. Um, you know, as Dana Bash, a longtime respected, uh, you know, reporter and correspondent for CNN said, it was a shit show. And it was. And it was always going to be. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, there was never any mm-hmm. chance it was going to be anything else. And I think to Steve's point, 
you know, we used to call the president of the United States the leader of the free world. Um, that's now Angela Merkel. I don't know what Donald Trump is leader of. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe the Proud Boys mm-hmm. or whatever. But I would say this, you know, just to, just to just to echo and maybe extend on what Tara said. That was not a wink and a nod. That was a call to action for those people. Um, you know, to to lock and load, as Steve said on a, on a call we were on this morning. And so, um, what's the what's the contrast? It's the contrast we've always talked about. It's America or Trump. There's only two options. And which one are we going to choose? And I, I think, you know, we should be concerned about the outcome of this election, but we should also understand that like the race, this race is, is collapsing on Donald Trump. He knows it. And I think that the more he knows it, the more he feels it, the more he's going to act like an even more insane person than he did on Tuesday night. You know, I'm listening to you. I'm, I'm listening to you, Reed, and I, I can't help but think about you know, the passage in the art of the deal where Trump describes his negotiating style, mm. which is to walk into a room, jab his finger into someone's chest and say, fuck you. Right. And so mm-hmm. that's what we got in that job, right? You want to understand why we have 200,000 dead Americans, why we're 4% of the world's population, 20% of the deaths, why if we had the same per capita mortality on COVID as the Germans did, we'd have 150,000 more Americans alive. This is exactly how this guy asks. This was the ass that you saw at a summit. And I'm not sure if it was a NATO summit, G20 summit. I don't remember. But when he when he pushed aside one of the one of the mm-hmm. leaders, mm-hmm. Um, it was an ally. Yeah, the head summit. of Montenegro. Where was it? Yeah. I think it was Montenegro. It was um, it was I think it was the prime minister of Montenegro right. who he shoved. But I think it was uh, one of the G. 20 meetings or Davos, one of them. Right. He's a, but yeah. he's, he's a crude and, and vulgar person. And, and the biggest joke in the world is watching Fox News afterwards and the freak show of propagandists over there from Judge Jeannie and Laura Ingram describing him as a lion, as a lion tamer. You know, what, he, what he is is like an angry drunk at the end of the bar screaming at the television set. I mean, his conduct is a, is appalling, disgraceful. I mean, if you were on an airplane, the captain acted like that, you know, 40% of the plane would have the good sense to jump up in the first two seconds, run for the exit and blow the hatch and come out of the thing on the slide. I mean, just what can you say about it? You know, he'll never change. He's completely unfit. And he put on a clinic of unfitness. That, that's what the country saw. I mean, the one thing I can tell you is my wife, and, I, and I've heard anecdotally from other people, you know, to Tara's point, is that my wife was epically, epically pissed off at the end of that debate. I think that most of it was it, it directed at Trump. I think, you know, another good chunk of it was directed at the, the just the spectacle of itself. And then probably some of it was, you know, was Chris Wallace ever going to do anything about it? And I'm not sure he ever could have. But I think my point is, is that like what people saw, and we've seen this anecdotally through what we hear here at the Lincoln Project, and what we've seen on social media was that, that there were people who were Trump supporters who would otherwise be Republicans just said, I, I can't do it anymore. I'm just, I can't, I can't mm-hmm. do it. I mean, mm-hmm. what, what else? I mean, mm-hmm. that's the question. Right. Um, I remember if you remember the uh, the Bourne identity, the first movie with Jason, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Jason yeah. Bourne and yeah. and he shoots one of the other assassins and the guy's laying there in a field dying. He goes, look what they make you give. Right. Look what make Trump makes yeah. you give yes. to be a supporter. Yeah. It's Ooh. a lot. He makes you ask. A, he makes you give a lot to be one. And it's amazing that anybody still does. You know, the, the line that stuck with me right after the debate, I think it was Jake Tapper who just came in with like, 
the, there was a very clear loser in this debate and it was the American people. Mm-hmm. And I think that just hits the nail on the head. But let's turn to a couple of the specific moments in the debate. And, uh, and Tara and Reed, you mentioned uh, Proud Boys. So let's talk about that one first, which is Donald Trump refusing to denounce white supremacy. Um, let's take a listen. Are you willing tonight to condemn white supremacists and militia groups and to say that they need to stand down and not add to the violence in a number of these cities, as we saw in Kenosha and as we've seen in Portland? Are you prepared to to specifically do it? I would say say almost everything I see is from the left wing, not from the right wing. So what are you 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 saying? I'm I'm willing to do anything. I want to see peace. Then do it, sir. Say it. Do it. Say it. Do you want to call them? What do you want to call them? Give me a name. Give me a white name. White supremacists and white right like supremacists and right supremacists. Stand back and stand by. But I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. Somebody's got to do something about Antifa and the left. Now, so just so our listeners are aware, the Proud Boys are a far right group with a history of violence and ties to white supremacy. They were founded in 2016 by Gavin McInnes and described themselves as a men's club for Western chauvinists. The Southern Poverty Law Center has designated the Proud Boys as a hate group because of their anti-Muslim and misogynistic rhetoric. They appeared along with other hate groups at rallies, including the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. Tara, stand back and stand by. We can't call this a dog whistle anymore. Senator Harris called it a bullhorn. What message was Trump trying to send by telling the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by? And how have they interpreted it? This is unacceptable. It's infuriating. It's dangerous. And I think this is 10 times worse than Charlottesville in that this is the umpteenth time where he's had an opportunity to denounce these bastards and has not. Why? Because Donald Trump is cut from the same mold. He sees these guys who are a bunch of insecure losers that run around playing law enforcement, playing military. Um, Unfortunately, in some of these groups, there are a bunch of them besides the Proud Boys. Some of them are either former military or law enforcement, which is even more alarming because they're trained. But most of them are wannabes. And Donald Trump is a wannabe. You know, he's a coward. That's why he never served in the military. Um, and that's why he puts on this fake, this faux bravado, like he's some tough guy. No, he's not. Donald Trump is a wimp, okay? And he sees these guys and thinks that they're tough and they're, they're a part of his group. If they love me, they like me. Why wouldn't I like them back? You know, they're his people. And it is so un-American and irresponsible of the president of the United States to sit there I did say a wink and a nod earlier, only because he was equivocating on denouncing them. And instead of just saying, you know, no, I won't denounce them, it was kind of like, oh, well, you know, stand back and stand by. Uh, that was worse than anything he's ever said before, because these people, they are a bunch of conspiracy theorists on top of it. They think that Donald Trump is sending them um, secret messages all the time anyway. It's uh, part of what the QAnon wackadoodles believe. So that was their marching orders. Donald Trump threatened America by talking about the, you know, the election being rigged and being a fraud and telling people to poll watch, which is really a, a um, code for intimidate at the polls. And he gave marching orders to these people who interpreted it as such. 
before the lights were even turned off in the auditorium, they had a patch out there that said, stand back and stand by. Um, the Atlantic has another story about another one of these groups called the Oath Keepers, who've been around since 2009, but have gotten um, more uh, energized and more recruitment since Donald Trump has been around. Um, That story is alarming also because it talks about the amount of of, um, law enforcement and military that have been that have signed up to be a part of this thing. Again, they think that it's their job to be patriots and stand up and defend this country against the leftists. Uh, this is insanity. Not just them. You have the Boogaloo movement. The Boogaloo movement is another domestic terrorist organization that the FBI and DHS has identified. Um, they arrested a bunch of them before this rally in Richmond earlier this year on Martin Luther King Day because their goal is to incite a fucking race war. Like, this is real stuff going on. This administration has buried their head in the sand. They refuse to acknowledge it, which means that local police departments are not getting the resources they need in order to track these groups and to stop them potentially from engaging in violent behavior. This is such a toxic mix of 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 violence of ideology, of well-armed people, and some are trained, that Donald Trump is continuing to foment and giving them the green light. Antifa, as much as I don't agree with what they do, I don't agree with them looting and rioting or whatever nonsense that they do, it's not an organized group. The FBI director, who was appointed by Donald Trump, Christopher Wray, said the same thing. Antifa's not a group, it's an ideology, and they're not well-organized. These other groups, they're well-organized and armed. And, the, and this administration is continuing to give them uh, a platform. You are, they use terms like insurrection. They use terms like sedition. This amps these people up. They've been sitting in their basements, you know, shining their guns up for years waiting for this moment. And Donald Trump has given them that green light. And this is completely unacceptable. And even Fox News. Recently, John Roberts, who's a reporter for Fox News, a White House correspondent, even he was was indignant. He was pissed off on air, complaining about how this White House and the Baghdad Bob version of it in address, Kelly McEnany, refused to again denounce white supremacist groups unequivocally. So when you have reporters at Fox even getting upset about it, um, now, those are the reporters, not the opinion people, because they're just as bad. Um, but you know now that there were, I think that they're starting to have enough because it's dangerous. Steve, uh, we were talking about extremism this morning, and, and I want to go to you next on this topic specifically, because the Southern Poverty Law Center reported in March that white nationalist groups have increased by 55%. Since 2017, we've seen attacks like the ones in El Paso and Pittsburgh and Charlottesville all during the Trump presidency. Can you sort of zoom out for us and talk about why these groups and just extremism across the board is thriving during the Trump administration? Well, let's talk very, very specifically about the about the Proud Boys and what the organizations are. It's a fascist organization. Full stop. And the leader of the organization, uh, Gavin McGinnis, is not a U.S. citizen, yet has repeatedly incited violence in this country, specifically political violence. Um, He's a very disturbed 
and disturbing and dangerous individual. And so the first thing I want to say is this. If his name was, let's just say, Adele Al-Samir, and he was from Egypt, how fast do we think we would deport his ass out of the country? Gavin McGinnis should be deported out of this country back to either Canada or to the United Kingdom where he holds citizenship. Shouldn't be in this country, number one. Number two, let's understand how the organizations, the Boogaloo Boys, who pray for a race war and dream of a second civil war, other fascist militias, we saw some of those militias deployed, stopping cars outside of Portland. We know that a 17-year-old boy in Illinois was driven to Wisconsin by his mother, who's affiliated with these groups. He killed two people and shot another with his AR-15, incited to violence by this insanity. And his mother was given a standing ovation, by the way, at a Republican organization, which is another disgraceful example of how these people are being lionized. And now there are T-shirts celebrating his image, and he's been praised as some type of freedom fighter. So let's understand what Trump said. The commands he gave to these groups was weapons at the ready. What he said was lock and load. Be ready. Be ready to fight an imaginary threat, Antifa. So let's, let's look at how this is all metastasized. Let's look at how the water boiled. Let's go back to 2018, before the midterm elections. Donald Trump invented a tale of a dangerous caravan heading to the southern border. And Trump's telling the desperate refugees and immigrants marching north from war-torn Central American countries were some type of panzer division. It was all bullshit. Yet, he deployed active duty elements of the United States military to face an invisible threat. We've seen him declare national emergencies spun from whole cloth for political reasons. And now, in a moment of chaos in this country, what he said at that debate in the end is the only thing that mattered in that debate. Donald Trump called to the ready right wing militias that are prepared to do violence in his name to maintain him in power should he lose an election that in the moment he said those things that he is losing. What, what Trump said with regard to a peaceful transition of power is it is dependent if I win. Well, what's the evidence of an illegitimate election. The evidence will be the result of Trump's loss. We're at a profoundly dangerous moment in this country. And where is the outrage from the United States senators? Tim Scott, the only black Republican senator 
what Tim Scott says about this is, well, I don't think he meant it. Are you shitting me? Susan Collins? I th- there, there's fault on both sides in the debate. Are you kidding Unbelievable. me? Unbelievable. So, so, we have, so we have a Senate class that's up for re-election. Every one of these people knew how dangerous COVID was, knew Trump was lying to the country about it. Every one of them knew that Trump knew how dangerous it was and that he was lying to the country. Not one of them said a word. Not one of them went to the floor of the Senate. And now when they hear the president intimate violence, call white supremacists, second civil race war, paramilitaries, proud boys to the line, weapons at the ready, not a fucking word. Mm-hmm. Unreal. Not a word. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and it actually, it, it is believable. It's absolutely believable. Um, as Steve said, like, remember that when they in, when they, um, found him innocent during his impeachment trial, they already knew, you know, for sure, because the Senate committee intelligence committee knew that they'd been playing footsie with the Russians and they did it anyway. They smiled and nodded. It's pre COVID was good economy. And they thought we're going to ride to our coat to, you know, ride his coattails to reelection. Then to Steve's point, here comes COVID, not a word. James, uh, uh, Mr. Floyd is killed. Not a word incites racial violence from that, well, always, but in particular, that moment forward, not a word. Says terrible things about the troops, not a word. Um, Does what he did Tuesday night vis-a-vis the Proud Boys or folks who are fighting drug addiction, not a word. Says he's not sure about the outcome of the election, not a word. So is this surprising? No. Is it unbelievable? It's not. We had 53 jellyfish pretending to be human beings in the United States Senate. And the only guiding principle they have is what tie, where, where the Donald Trump tide is carrying them, to finish off a bad metaphor. Um, and so none of this is unbelievable. None of it's surprising. They are fundamentally lost souls in American democracy. And that's ultimately what this, you know, we talked about this, you know, I think some of our ads back in the summer, we, we, we ended them with the hashtag America or Trump. Like we're in the exact same place now, 33 days. There's out. only one more ask. Um, though. And so we're, he only has one more ask that he can, that he yeah. can make of them. And it's cross the final line that they take explicit action in favor or remain silent and complicit with the maintaining and power of an American president who's been rejected by the popular will of the American people. To steal an election from the American people and their will and to fundamentally end the American experiment. That's his last ask. It's yep. coming. That's what we're facing. Yep. It's coming. Look, and I mean, we have, I mean, all of us, all of us on this podcast, so many of us that are, are involved with the Lincoln Project have dozens, hundreds, if not thousands of friends, colleagues, former colleagues, contacts in Washington, D.C. And, you know, th- it's their time to choose. Are they going to stand up for democracy or are they going to be collaborators? Because that's what they are. There, there's no other word for it now. Um, you, know, are, you know, are they going to invite or allow or sit by while sedition occurs at the hands of the United States president? I'd like to say the answer is no, but at this point, you know, 
what have we seen that would let us know otherwise? And look, we, you know, we'll see that, well, it's not really my problem. I've got the business, my family. What is, what am I going to do? What difference does it make? Like that's all, those are all easy ways out. Those are all ways of saying it's not my problem. Maybe it's not a real big deal. These guys are making too much of it. I mean, what else do we need to say? What else do we need to see? What else do we need to hear from the guy? I mean, what, I mean, remember, there are two things we should never forget. One, Donald Trump is not stupid. He's ignorant and he's got bad intentions, but he's not stupid. So we shouldn't let him off the hook. And two, for all of the lies, when he tells you he wants to go do something, he's usually telling you the truth and you should listen to him. I'm curious about this point, Reed, which is that in Tara, why, why do you think there's an allergy to taking him both literally and seriously after all this That's time. a good question. Why, why is it that when he says something in plain English, that people go out of their way, including even some people in opposition, to try to explain that what he just plainly said, in fact, he did not mean? What is that? Because you're going to have to stand up and fight. Right. It's, it's easier to just acquiesce. They don't have political courage. Because if he meant it, then you have to condemn it. And if he Correct. didn't mean it, you can dance around it. Well, but condemning it is easy. Doing something about it is hard. Right. Sure. Well, they can't even be bothered to condemn it most of the time. No, that, well, that's true. But because that, then condemning it takes the next, means the next right. step has to be taken right. to Reed's point. Well, because, okay, well, then what are you going to do about it? Well, because condemning it is then an act of, of, of like, you're, you're a traitor now to him. Right, which, but look, I mean, it's like, okay, well, you know, I've got my public affairs firm and I have 25 people that work for me and I went, I said something and now like, oh, well, you're not going to get that contract or, you know, mm-hmm. the campaign I had is gone. Mm-hmm. Well, what am I going to do mm-hmm. about these 25 people? Like the 25 mm-hmm. people are just an excuse, right? Mm-hmm. Um, not only that, you know, as, as Steve says, to take it a step further, when he asks you to make that final choice this November and you choose to stand with him, and let's say for argument's sake, that he wins. You know, I don't think it's going to happen, but let's say it wins. Like the, you have now opened yourself to the understanding that you will say and do anything to maintain yourself within that circle because authoritarians will always ask more and more and more of you for their favor or for a piece of business or for money or whatever it is. So like in many ways, this is the last step to democracy. But for these folks who won't step up, it's only the first step in their fully being integrated into whatever comes next if Trump remains president. It's self-preservation, which is what we've said. You know, you learn in Politics 101 that, you know, elected officials are single seekers of re-election yeah. because it's in their self-interest to maintain power by staying elected. So they will say and do anything to preserve that. And in Reed's example, it's for people who financially, um, career-wise, uh, are it's to their advantage to stay in line because it could cost them too much if they step out of line. And we've seen this repeatedly. All of us have seen that. And um, it's it's selfish. And that level of selfishness has enabled Donald Trump uh, to get away with this. If Republicans from the beginning had stepped up and and proverbially popped him in the mouth when he first started this kind of BS, he wouldn't have been able to get away with it. But he's been failing up and getting away with this since he was a child. He's never been told no. He's never paid a price for it. And he's been enabled his entire life. Mary Trump wrote about that in her book. And we are seeing it play out now as the victims of, the, of Donald Trump's 
behavior, his failures, and his uh, enabling because the people who were supposed to tell him, stop it, that's not how we do things, that's not how the Constitution works, that's not how our constitutional republic works, no, you can't run around alienating all of these groups and being a racist and inciting violence and questioning transitions of power and playing footsie or even more with the Russians, our enemies. You can't do this and we will not allow it. They didn't do that because they were afraid of his little stubby Twitter fingers and his followers who were, you know, who have been um, a, a very vocal minority. You know, in 2016, I wrote a piece called The Tyranny of the Minority. Uh, as a play on de Tocqueville's tyranny of the majority, because that's what we're, that's what we're seeing right yeah. now. These people aren't the majority of this country, but they're the loudest right now. Well, hopefully not, <laughs> but during the Trump presidency, right? And that is these people who are elected officials are scared to death of losing and that they'll get primaried by some QAnon person, like what happened to that congressman in Colorado. They slept on it. They underestimated it. And now he is. He's going to be out of a job and a QAnon person is running for that. Or what happened in Georgia? Same thing. This is they've allowed them to come in because they're, they don't have the balls to stand up and say, no, stop it. And that well, is let me just can I can I nerd out on can I nerd out on sure. on, on Hamilton for a second? Remember at the very beginning yeah. when yeah. when yes. Aaron Burr tells Hamilton, you know, talk less, smile more. Don't let right. them know what you're against or what you're for. Like that mm-hmm. is the definition of most Republicans in Washington, D.C. right now. Maybe in most most of politics in Washington, let's be clear, like there's a whole bunch of ugliness and, you know, Jonah Ryan's running around there. Um, but <laughs> Great Veep reference. Uh, yeah. But um, I mean, that's the thing is like, if I just smile, ignore it, it'll go away. Just, I just have to get through this. Like, don't let them block out the noise. Don't watch the TV. Don't turn on Facebook or whatever. I'll just go home. My wife's rip shit with me because of my business. She's opposed to me. But like, what am I going to do? Tara mentioned Mary Trump, who wrote about this in her book, and she came on the podcast recently. And one of the things she said was, when someone lies about you to your face or in public, they own you if you don't correct them. If you don't correct them, they own you. And that's exactly what we see playing out here. Because the talk less, smile more means that he now owns you if you don't speak up, if you don't correct him in public. And he'll push it further and further which, and further, which is which, what he's exactly, done. Exactly. Which is why these comments about the Proud Boys are connected to his baseless claims of massive voter fraud due to mail-in voting and his claim that there's going to be a rigged election. You know, for our listeners, Trump called for his supporters to go to polling locations and watch very carefully. This was days after Donald Trump Jr. took to Facebook and Twitter calling for all able-bodied people to join an election security army, and I'm putting that in quotes, to serve as poll watchers. Steve... What is his goal in sowing doubt on our election? To remain in power. He's, he said it, he will not concede the election. He will not concede it. He will not acknowledge defeat. And this is important to understand because he will, there will be a transition of power, right? Trump is intimating it will not be peaceful. And that's an extraordinary thing because The peaceful transition of power in this country, in all of human history, is a type of magical event, a miracle. The oldest constitutional republic in the world. This tradition started by George Washington. His adversary, King George III, asked, what was Washington going to do? 
And when he was told that Washington was going to go home, George Washington is going home, as they sung in Hamilton. He said he'd be the greatest man of his age, the first human being to walk away from power. Our friend Stuart Stevens makes the point in a democracy, one side has to be willing to lose. I've been in the inner circle at the highest level of two presidential campaigns. We won one and we lost one. I'm the guy that placed the call to David Pluff, who then handed the phone to Barack Obama, as I handed the phone to John McCain, for John McCain to concede to the will of the American people that they chose Senator Obama and not him. In that act, John McCain continues the process by which the American Republic is renewed. The first person to call Barack Obama Mr. President-elect who matters is John McCain in that instance. This is how this works. This is what makes us special. This is what makes us exceptional. This is an extraordinary tradition. And so the only time in the history of the country where there was a real legitimate question around whether the transition of power would be peaceful or not was around Abraham Lincoln's inauguration. Would he be killed? Would he be sabotaged as the country teetered on the edge of civil war? There will be a transition of power. There will not be a Trump coup. There will not be an illegitimate president. There will not be a dictator sitting in the Oval Office. And Joe Biden is right about that. But before we get there, Trump may throw this country into total chaos. And there may be violence. That's what he's intimating. That's what he's threatening. But we should understand, and every senator, every member of Congress, every Republican governor, every Republican staffer, every Republican lobbyist, all of them, the idea that you would stand on the side of someone who tries to subvert the sovereign will of the American people that's been purchased with the blood of Americans from Lexington and Concord to Gettysburg to Antietam to Normandy, to Bella Wood, to Iwo Jima, to the North Atlantic in the Pacific Ocean, to the million ghosts who gave us this precious freedom and right, and you would surrender it to Trump? God, it's a disgrace. Just a disgrace. Reed. No, I was just going to say, you know, I think we think about Washington, but we should really, you know, not overlook John Adams either, right? Remember, he was our second president, lost his reelection bid and left. He didn't stick around. He left. Um, I would also say that, you know, we were we were talking with uh, uh, Michael Steele, former chairman of the GOP, who's a who's a senior advisor of ours as well, who still lives in the D.C. era as, as Tara does. And he said, you know, the the thing that most upset him was just how transactional so many of our former colleagues have become that they understand that that Trump is the you know not only the ultimate projectionist but for him everything is transactional that it doesn't you know politics doesn't matter morals don't matter progress doesn't matter if i can if i can 
kiss enough ass and say, okay, yeah, you know, Jared, I love you too. Can I get my earmark? Can I get my bill done? Can I get this grant or whatever the hell it is so that I can go make more money for my client? Like it's, it's, it doesn't matter anymore, right? The politics of it is a politics of what, what can I do that's going to enrich me or make self-aggrandize me? And, you know, we're disconnected from the rest of the country and what they think doesn't really matter. And what we do is the most important thing. And if Trump wants to do this, what do we care? I mean, it's, it, it's, it's, not, it's, not only, right. it's not only, it's not only, it's not only a disgrace. It's, it, it's sad. There's a, just an ultimate, you know, what have we lost? Um, you know, it's, it's like the same idea as, you know, Tara and Steve both worked on the Hill and my dad did too. It was always like why I didn't like when, m- when a member of Congress, when their chief of staff ran for their office. Like I never liked that because like yeah. they already knew how the game yeah. was played. Like they weren't going yeah. to make the, yeah. you know, the, dist- you know, the, the citizens of Alabama one better. They were doing because they're like, okay, I'm going to do my six terms and then I'm going to yeah. go be on this committee and yeah. I'm going to get this expertise and then I'm going to yeah. be a lobbyist here. And then, you yeah. know, I'm going to get feted at this thing and that thing for the rest of my life. Like it, it's not, there's it wasn't no about service, service left. Right. There's no service right. left. Yeah. Right. And 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 the, also the issue here with this and why it's so easy for these people to be transactional is because their motivation is not based on principle. It's based on because when it's based on principle, those principles are not convenient. You know, you don't yeah. just believe these th- these beliefs are what they are when they're convenient for you. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like a it's like a relationship or friendships. You know, it's marriage. You're not just married. You know, for the, through the good times, through the good and the bad, right? Yeah. And that's what happens even in politics. And the and what I have seen, you can tell the difference between the people who really believe and stand on their principles versus the people who are just there for when it's convenient and beneficial to them. Yeah. And that is not the definition of being a public servant. Yeah. You know, and to keep the, the Hamilton show metaphors going. You know, during that that election, when it came down to who Hamilton would support, why did he support Jefferson? Because he said, Jefferson has beliefs, Burr has none. Mm, yeah. Right? God, that's such a good moment in the show. That which is also a, Burr went on to prove even more so. Yeah. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's right. And that is the difference here. That is the yeah. difference. You know, when I saw Hamilton for the first time, I saw it actually in, in London, in the West End. Mm. Um while my husband was there on work and for work and I was there by myself and I teared up during yeah. Hamilton. This was just in December, by the way, people. <laughs> it was in December while yeah. the, you know, the impeachment stuff was going on and I was just seeing how this country has just been freed and just being just um, ripped apart by everything. And, and so watching Hamilton in that context and watching how our country was, was founded and you know the the passion and the and the the principles that that were that it was founded on it was emotional for me and that line stood with me because it stayed with me because it reminded me of everything and this is even before the Lincoln project existed um it's it it reminded me of what those of us who had been standing on principle in the quote never trump world were doing you know we have we have beliefs and they have none because if they believed in anything that was meaningful there's no freaking way in the world Donald Trump would be getting away with what he'd been getting away with and Republicans was it all a lie like Stuart Stevens book was it all a lie because it makes you wonder you know i just you know tara i was just you know as you were talking about hamilton you know i was i was lucky enough i saw hamilton on broadway on opening night Wow. And oh, schmancy I've there. Seen, <laughs> I, I, I've, got, I've seen it four times. And yeah. it is it is a work of of total genius. And absolutely I was, really is. I was yeah. and it's and it's a 
and an act of patriotism and great, great love of, of country. But, but it, but it had a different, I think, effect for a lot of people. However, however the human brain works, right? Whatever its mysteries, right? Like how we process information, how we take a visual cue. It's that when I, when I think about the founding fathers, right? When I picture James Madison, as I, I was reading the Federalist Papers last week, I guess because I've seen the play four times, and I've never seen a video of James Madison. Hey, nerd alert. I've got Federalist 10 on my desk right now. <laughs> I've had, and that's, that's exactly what I was reading. Well about played, the, About the court. I have this, I have this picture in my, in my mind's eye of James Madison is the character from the play. Who is a, Being who black. Is a black man. He's and, black. Yeah, and, I, and, and, I, and I think then in the context of not the hypocrisy of the, of the country and the separation between the perfection of the idea that founded it and the reality, it makes me focus more on the perfection of the idea. And that's the point, right? The, the idea of the country has to be perfected and sustained, right? And the idea of the country, like what we, what we should all agree on now in 2020, it's for everybody. Everybody gets a shot at this. No one should be excluded from it. Doesn't matter. Black, white, Hispanic, gay. An American comes in all shapes and sizes and colors. It's taken us a long time to get there. We don't want to go back, right? That's what this fight's about. And, and what Trump is doing, what Trump is doing is the worst thing a president could ever do to this country. Well, and look, the, the, we should think about this too. You know, November 3rd is going to come and go. Trump's going to lose and he's going to leave. But let's be clear, like the fight is not over. The work is just beginning at that point. Um, that, you know, the democracy is a hard thing to build. It's a pretty tough thing to sustain. It's an easy thing to destroy. And so, you know, as, as we move forward here, we'll take, you know, groups like ours, um, folks of, you know, both parties, some who are unaffiliated, some who have no desire to be involved in politics to come together and say, you know, where are we going to go from here? But none of that can or will happen until we get this guy, you know, out of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. And so, you know, as, as we talked about, I think, Ron, a little bit last week, like we should think about this in the context of like our opportunity, not in what yes. could happen that's bad which is yes. how many people in the history of the world in their own lives have the opportunity to say, I was there and I did my part when my country, my community, my family needed me. And we're there. We're at that moment, right? And what mm -hmm. a great opportunity and great thing to have happen for us. And so like, I, I yeah. know and I can't speak for y'all, but I know it gets me out of bed every morning going, 34 yeah. days till this jerk <laughs> is gone, right? Like me, he's going to, he's going to wake yeah. up or he's probably yeah. not going to go to bed, but he's going to see the returns come in. He's going to lose Florida and he's going to lose North Carolina. And he's probably, you know, he's going to be within a razor's edge in Georgia and Texas, and he's going to have to make a decision. And that decision is probably going to be easier than we think it is, which is, I don't like these people. I hate this job. I never wanted this job. I thought Hillary was going to beat me. 
And I'm going to go make saying a, that since November 8th, right, 2016. Yeah. Right. I mean, he doesn't yeah. want the job. He the, hates you know, the, it. That clip, that clip from election night on the look on his face oh when he my won. God. Right. You guys remember that? Sure. Yeah, he yeah. was, he was, he was not happy. Well, and no, the books go back that Melania bursts into tears like, because now she's got to move oh, and like, shit, right. I have to do this job now. Right. Yep. Which he never this. has, right? Because to him, it's performative. Um, but, you know, he will play, he will continue his performance as, these people, you know, like every good authoritarian who is ultimately turned out, these people don't deserve me. I didn't want this. I'm never coming back. You'll never hear from me again, which, of course, is a lie. We will never stop hearing from him. But, I mean, let's, t- let's take but our he opportunity. he says it all the, the time. Horns. He says it all the time about how he, you know, I didn't have to do this. I had a, I had a better life before, you know, the reports about the White House. So did the rest of the White us. House being a dump. Yeah, no kidding. And to continue with our Hamilton metaphors, um, what a time to be alive. We are lucky we are here to be alive right now because we have a role to play. Okay, so just to just to wrap up this conversation about the debate, usually campaigns, political strategists, we we write off debates because they don't usually change minds, right? They're temporary, they exist in a moment of time, and then the impact generally fades. Uh, and I just want to put this question out on the table to to each of you. Could this debate be different? Do you think it was different? I think it was different for sure. Yeah. Um, because we've never seen anything like this and the visceral reaction universally outside of the cult um, is pretty overwhelming. Um, and, you know, to Reed's point earlier, he said that his wife was, you know, she was appalled by it. Um, looking at focus groups and other people who are not as political as all of us. You know, we eat, breathe, and shit all this every day, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But just the people who are living their lives, looking at that, um, being repulsed by it, because it is, it was an ugly moment in America, and, and it forces people to have to face the fact that this is the choice, these are the choices we have to make, and a choice is coming up. You don't like it? Well, get out there and change it. And they can do that. And I think that that is uniquely different compared to other other campaigns. Um, I hope that it didn't turn people off so much that they just they decide not to vote. That's a cop out. But that, that is a but cop that out. was also it's that's our also been the plan, right? Is to freak yes, people out and upset them so much. Of course, voter suppression is a part of the Trump playbook. We've seen this from day one. We just saw a Channel 4 news um expose from Channel 4 News over there in the UK. describing how the Trump campaign in connection with Cambridge Analytica, um, a data firm that micro-targeted black voters in various precincts in places like Wisconsin and Michigan um, for voter suppression efforts to feed them bullshit on Facebook and target these ads and messaging so that they would not go out and vote for Hillary Clinton. It wasn't about trying to get more votes. It was trying to keep people home. And they're doing that again. There was no accident that the talking points coming out of the Trump campaign have been going after Biden, making stuff up about things that he said or, you know, trying to convince black voters that that Joe Biden is somehow the racist and that he's not on their side. Okay, you know, we didn't know all that. The the Obama administration didn't know that. You know, they, they picked a racist to be his vice president. It's an asinine. It's an asinine assertion. But they are trying to do what they did in 2016 to convince enough people to say, to hell with it. None of them represent me, so I'm not voting at all. That is the biggest mistake they could ever make, and we need to push back against that every single day because you get the government you deserve if you don't participate. Steve, 
were any minds changed because of this debate? There is this mantra that has come together that the debates don't matter on cable news. And I just disagree with it. I think they matter a lot. I always think they matter. I think you can, I, I just don't get it, right? I, I, don't, I don't get why people say that. It's just, it's not true. I could argue it all day long. But um, yeah, the debate's going to hurt Trump because it, it showed, how, showed how unfit he is. I, I'll say this, you know, what Tara was talking about with, and we're remiss in not talking about it earlier, but the targeting of the three and a half million mm-hmm. black voters in this country. I'm sure we don't have a functioning civil rights division in the Justice Department, For no other reason, clearly we don't. Then we don't have a functioning Justice Department under Interior Minister Barr. But um, but when we do, um, providing that the statute of limitations haven't run out, um, I hope that there will be criminal prosecutions um, under Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act, whatever criminal penalties attach to everybody who is involved in trying to defranchise black voters in a premeditated, systematic, deliberate way. It's an illegal activity in this country. You can't do that. No, and absolutely. I hope That's people right. will be held to account for it. Well, and I would just say on the, on the debate front, um, I, I agree with Steve. I think that debates do matter, um, which is why if you are you know, a, a staunch supporter of, of either candidate or if you happen to be on the staff of one of those, you know, either watching, you know, on television or in the green room while while you understand that it's like once you shove off it's like a it's like a roller coaster with rockets attached to it, right? Like you're, you 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 can't control it once it goes off. And so, you know, you just have to hope that the that the prep you've done and the set pieces you put in place are able to to carry your candidate forward. Um, of course, Trump is, you know, this, you know, this whirling dervish of bullshit and distraction, as I called him last week, and he certainly was those things. Um, and so I think that, um, you know, they do matter. And so, um, and I think you're going to see, I think uh, Mike Madrid, who's one of our co-founders and, and runs our political shop, was just sending some stuff around that shows it already looks like, you know, Trump's taking a three to four percent hit nationally on this. Like, that can't be a surprise. Um, and he can't, he can't afford to lose, you know, one-tenth of one percent, let alone four percent. So I think it, it shows what can happen. Now that we have fully dissected the most horrific debate in presidential debate history, let's look at the week ahead. Reed, what do you got your eye on? Sure. So, I mean, obviously we have the vice presidential debate uh, coming up next week in Salt Lake City uh, with Senator Harris and Vice President Pence. Um, it'll be interesting to see. I assume Pence will go hard on the culture war in his own way, uh, probably focusing on evangelicals. Um, I, I would expect that, as we saw with uh, with Senator Harris previously in the United States Senate, that it wouldn't surprise me if she takes almost a sort of a prosecutor's role in this deal, um, which I think you know Pence will probably not be willing um, to to accept gladly. Um, and then I think it's also you know more and more Americans are going to be voting. Uh, every day now. And so, you know, what will the long-term effects of this debate this week on Donald Trump's prospects be? Uh, as I think that, you know, more and more Americans, um, specifically, I think, you know, we've always thought that the white suburban voter would move away from Trump and that would cost him. But now we're starting to see that white working class men are moving away from him. And And someone smarter than me on the team said, I think, you know what, I think it's, you know, just like my wife, they were watching this on Tuesday night and they said, you're not voting for that guy. You, you, you want to live in this house? You're not voting for that guy again. So it'll be interesting to see how in places like, you know, not only Pennsylvania, but also places like Ohio and North Carolina and Florida, 
as we start to see those. Look, if this if this thing's over in Florida on election night, like Trump has lost, and and that'll be it. And speaking of debates, there's also another story that the Commission on Presidential Debates is going to make changes to the debate format after this disaster on Tuesday night. Uh, in their statement, they said. Last night's debate made clear that additional structure should be added to the format of the remaining debates to ensure a more orderly discussion of the issues. And of course, Trump's campaign communications director, Tim Murtaugh, told CNN that the commission shouldn't be moving the goalposts and changing the rules in the middle of the game. Um, They didn't say what the changes would be, but I'm interested to see how it shapes the other two debates. Steve, what are you looking at going into this week? I can't wait for this vice presidential debate. And I'm not playing the expectations game. She's going to kick his ass all over that debate stage. And it's going to be a wondrous thing to watch. And she's going to crush him. And I lay awake at night sometimes trying to figure out who's more full of shit, Mike Pence or Lindsey Graham, who's more totally principless. And, you know, it's really hard really hard to like on any given day right you know who who's who won it's a photo finish on any given day but she's gonna annihilate him humiliate him embarrass him um because they've done so much damage to the country there's no there's no case to be to be made and she is a very very skillful questioner and what she's so good at like any prosecutor you know who's has who has courtroom experience she's a great listener and she's gonna she's gonna listen to those moments where pence is full of shit and she's gonna strike at him and you know we'll all be watching the whole country will be watching i know jerry falwell jr will be watching he'll be watching on he probably watches most nights but watching something but he'll be watching mike pence and we'll see the full spectacle of hypocrisy. Steve, and we know Jerry religious, likes to watch. We know that's what he likes to watch. <laughs> it's going to be great. And uh, I'm looking forward, and, I, and I'm looking forward to the Lincoln Project's activities next week. And Tara, what are you watching? Well, um, obviously, I'm looking forward to that vice presidential debate as well. And and um, I never really thought I would say that, but um, it will certainly be much more interesting than some of the last vice presidential debates, maybe since 2008. I really never thought that I would say the words I'm right, looking forward to right. vice presidential debate ever again. But, <laughs> um, Steve is, is, is scarred for life after the, the, the Palin experience. Um, but besides that, uh, on a little bit of a more serious note, um, because I think it's important for people to pay attention to, um, because of how poorly Donald Trump did and how well Joe Biden performed and how well we anticipate that Kamala Harris will, I'm looking at what the collective freakout is going to look like on the Trump side, on the Fox News side, what level of disinformation and bullshit that they're going to continue to put out there to try to undermine the election. Um, this is part of a massive Russian disinformation campaign, the Republican Party, the Trump campaign, Fox News, and all of those right-wing media outlets are willing co-conspirators in this Russian operation to sow discord and undermine our democracy. So I'm paying attention to what they're throwing out there. To all of the listeners who have parents that are over 50 and 60 that are on Facebook, 
tell them to stop forwarding these memes, stop forwarding <clears throat> information where they don't know who the or origin is of that news source. If it didn't, if it did not come from a major mainstream re- reputable news source, stop forwarding it. This is part of the game here. So I'm paying attention to see if we're going to see another ramp up of the, uh, of the, terms like insurrection and fraud and, you know, Trump tweeting in all caps about how there's this and that. Don't fall for it. Do not fall for it. Stay focused. Keep your eye on the ball and do your best to continue to inform yourself about what's real and what's not, because that's the way you can, that way you can help educate others that are, that don't know what's happening. Because obviously if you're listening to us, you're paying attention and you're being informed and take that information and spread the word. Don't fall for the okie doke. And I'm paying attention to see how dishonest they're really going to become because that means they're freaking out because they know they're losing. So keep up the momentum. This episode was recorded when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have any questions or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. And please know that even if we don't respond, we read every email we get, and we love hearing from you. If you enjoy the show, it would help us if you could rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.